name is Andy Manwiller, and uh, we've been, my wife and I, our family, we've been coming here since uh, 2009, so quite a little, little bit now. And uh, my wife and I have been married for 22 years, two months, and 10 days, and counting. Um, <clears throat> uh, we have a 16-year-old, 12-year-old, 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old. I'll be referencing them throughout, because that's what people who speak up front do. So. Uh, but just a little bit about who I am, but just so thankful uh, to be able to share from the Word of God. It's such a privilege, and, and, and to be a broken person, able to share what God has done uh, in me and through me, uh, and, and in you. We are a church of broken people, are we not? That's who we are, and we'll talk more about that later on as well. But uh, before we get into the Word, let's just let's pray and uh, give this time to God. Thank you, God, that that is who you are. You are God. <clears throat> you humbled yourself, as Pastor Andrew shared with us and pointed out to us last week from the Word. You humbled yourself and came. You invaded time and space to become one of us, to identify with me, to live the perfect life and to die the sinner's death for me. <clears throat> God, as we consider those truths this morning, even now, God, would you work in us to help us plow up our fallow ground, as the Old, Test Old Testament pictures a couple times. Help us to plow up our fallow ground. We are, we are hard-hearted, and we, we are so forgetful. But help us to plow up our fallow ground and be good soil. And I pray that it would be your word, not me, your word that impacts our hearts and lives. May we be good soil uh, as your word goes forward this morning. Thank you that it is all about you. And so take this time, uh, use it to challenge us, uh, equip us, uh, humble us to then go and share with the world out of a heart of, of broken uh, humility and yet strength in who we are in Christ and what you have done for us in that, that unspeakable joy that we have. May we go and share this with the world around us. Take this time and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, December 26th. Christmas has come. Christmas has gone, or if you're like me and my family, um, we, we have a couple more Christmases, right? Uh, in fact, this afternoon, I got to pick my parents up from the airport, uh, so I will be done by at least two o'clock this afternoon, uh, at least. Uh, uh, as Alistair Begg once said, though, it's my job to preach and your job to listen. If you get done before I do, just sit quietly, and then we'll all leave together. So... <clears throat> But Christmas has come and gone. Uh, there's so many good things, so many good things. Uh, parent, presents, family, food, uh, so many other things. The decorations have been really good this year. I don't know, our neighborhood, I think we've had more lights than, than I've seen before, right? There's so many good things uh, that have been crowding our minds uh, during this Christmas season. Maybe for some of us, it's been difficult. It's been sad, maybe the first one without certain loved ones. Uh, maybe we, we were anxious, or maybe still are anxious, I don't know, about getting together with family, because it can, unfortunately, sometimes be more stressful than we would like, and our current political socio, social climate exacerbates that and makes it difficult. All these things going on, and now and we begin to take down the decorations and all that, or we have more to ramp up for, whatever, but all this, all this is going on, and it's very easy to say that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? It's easy to say that. And if we were to go around, every one of us would probably go ahead and say that. Yes, Jesus is the reason for the season. But it's another thing to, to live like it, to act like it. 
And so this morning, I want us to dig into God's Word and remind ourselves what we, what we have celebrated, what we are celebrating uh, at this time of year. Uh, personally, I think we should celebrate after the baby came anyway, right? So this is great. We'll, we'll keep celebrating Christmas for at least another week here, right? So let's think about, I want us to think this morning about why Jesus came. This year, uh, in December, for our Advent time as a family, uh, we, we got a new thing that we, we had found somewhere, Advent blocks, and it was really cool. Uh, we went through a number of Old Testament stories and looking forward with anticipation to, to, to uh, gee, God is coming to earth. God is coming to earth. And it was just such a cool reminder over and over. And we'd say the same thing. God, will you come back to stay? And, and God is coming to earth to stay. The story changed as it went on. And we were looking forward to Jesus coming back. And so I want us to think again about why did Jesus come? There's all this anticipation about presents and all these different things. And the baby, we say that's most important. But why did he come? And that's what I want us to look at today. And so to help us think about that, our Christmas passage this morning is not one of the, the typical Christmas passages that we would go to in Matthew or Luke. Uh, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. If you have your papers, I, I do not make blanks, uh, or I didn't. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But anyway, there's no blanks. But uh, you can see we're in 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15 which says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's our Christmas passage this morning, <clears throat> and we're going to look at it word by word or phrase by phrase. You can see that in your, uh, in your outline there. And so we're going to start with the word Christ. We're looking at uh, the, the phrase, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so look at the word Christ. <clears throat> I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch. I took like this much of Machen's book and all that, and I know a little bit. But uh, Christ, right, is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament word, what? Messiah. Messiah. Uh, and Messiah means the anointed one. The anointed one, the promised one, the one who's going to come, who's going to do some special task. And the Old Testament is full of anticipation of the Messiah, of Jesus, of God fulfilling his promise, the one to come to take away sin. So what are some Old Testament stories? Maranatha, you are, we are, we are steeped in Scripture. You know Scripture. It's not just the one who stands up here that knows the Word and then spoon-feeds us, right? We should be reading God's Word and getting into it together and growing to be fed and encouraged more. So you tell me, what are some Old Testament passages? What are some Old Testament passages that point to this baby who was coming or, or this Messiah, this anointed one who was coming? What are some of those promises? Genesis 3.15, again, I don't know, Greek proto-evangelion or something, something like that. The first gospel, the first good news. Genesis 3.15, that's where it starts. God creates the perfect world, and, and then it, we, we, it falls because of sin, because Adam and Eve sinned. And even in the curse, the consequences of sin, there was the promise, the promise uh, to, to the woman that uh, that her seed, through her seed, someone in her line, someone was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Even as his, his heel was bruised, he would crush the head of the serpent, the serpent who deceived them, who brought this sin. So all through the Old Testament, 
We're looking forward to the seed, the Proto-Evangelion. Yes, the first message of the gospel. Good. What else? Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. Oh, that's the, that's the donkey, right? Coming, riding on a donkey? No? Oh, let's, let's go look. It's not on my list. You guys are smarter than me. This is good. More thorough. Uh, 9, 6, right? Uh, not going to break out singing the hallelujah chorus. Um, but for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We're looking for the son, the child, the, the line of the seed that was promised back in Genesis 3. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ah, it's so exciting. There's looking forward to, the, to the, the one who would be born. A child would be born. What else? Zechariah 9. I knew it was a 9, and that's what threw me off. Yeah, Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming uh, lowly on a colt, the, the foal of a colt. And that pointed to what we're going to celebrate in the spring of uh, Palm Sunday, right? Uh, that the king is coming, and he's lowly, he's humble. Uh, Pastor Andrew, again, walked us through a lot of really cool things last week, looking at the humility of God for what it's worth today. What, that should lead to our own humility. It's one of the main points that I want us to get to, so prepare ourselves for that, right? Uh, but Jesus came humbly and lowly, but as a king. Zechariah 9. What, what else? What other passages point, pointed us to this one who is going to come. You didn't know you were going to be tested this morning, right? Oh, yeah. Second Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, where God makes promises to David that you are this king, and I have established you, but from you is going to come, there's going to become kings. There will there'll be someone from your line who will sit on the throne forever. And the promises to David, again, if, you, if we trace it through from Genesis 3, there's always this line of the seed. Adam begot Seth, he begot Enos, he begot Canaan, he begot Mahalalel. I can't go any further right now. Uh, I have a song, that's how I got that. Anyway, you could keep going all the way through. Uh, but you could keep going all the way through. And, and there in 2 Samuel 7, God makes promises to David about he's in that line and from you. And that's where it gets kind of fun too, how it all carries out and why there's Joseph and there's Mary and they both fit that. It's so cool how God put that all together. Any others? What is that one? 2 Samuel 2.35. Yeah. There's, there's those promises. I'm going to raise up this one who's going to come. There's all these promises. Someone else said something over here? Isaiah 53, yes, the classic passage. Isaiah 53, uh, he will be, it describes Jesus. It's like, it's like Isaiah was sitting at the foot of the cross and writing this. It's just so cool. All these promises, again, they were expecting a political king, and Jesus was coming to accomplish something different and set up a different kind of kingdom. But Isaiah 53 lays that all out for us. I will allude to that later on. We could go on. I, I have until noon. No, I shouldn't go there. Anyway. We could go on, but we'll stop there. There's so many. Uh, we've hit, you've hit a few on my list, a few others that I didn't have. Um, but again, that line throughout Genesis 12, Exodus and the Passover lamb, uh, the tabernacle, the temple, uh, over and over. Think of it this way. 
a lot of times people look at the Old Testament and see God is this vengeful, angry God. But in the New Testament, he's a God of love and great. No, that's not the case. Did you read the Old Testament? Yes, there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of consequences. But all the time, it's about to, trying to get them to turn to him. God is trying to win their hearts. And, and, and like with my children, I try and teach them and, and train them, not to get them in trouble, not to zap them, but to help them learn and grow. And when I bring pain, I, I, they're both two of them over here. Uh, but when I bring pain, it's to try and get them to come back and respond appropriately. That's the God of the Old Testament. Over and over, there is never a point, never a book of the Bible where it's missing. God is always, always, always calling people to himself. God made these promises, and though he is judgmental and, and wrathful, it is because he loves us and he wants us to know him. He is the greatest treasure. And so the Old Testament has this anticipation. Uh, and I hope and pray that you were able to, 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 to build that a little bit uh, in, in your lives, uh, in, your, in your homes, uh, the, the anticipation of Christmas season and Jesus coming. There was anticipation in the Old Testament, and I hope we had that. Do we see ourselves? Do, do I see my own sin? Do I see this broken world, beautiful world that we live in, but this broken world that we live in, and do we long for salvation? The people in the Old Testament longed for that. Do we long for God to come and make everything right, to make everything sad come untrue? That kind of anticipation is what we're about here at Christmas. It's not about having the perfect Christmas where, where there's cold and snow and there's everyone in your family is there and everybody gets along. Those are great. If you have those, awesome. Those are not bad at all. But that's not what it's about. It's about all the brokenness that does exist. One day he's going to make it right. And the, the baby coming in the manger is the beginning of that story. The beginning of that story. And so Christ, the anticipated, the, the Messiah, the one through all the Old Testament that was promised and God working his plan, the Messiah, Christ. Let's keep going. Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. So we'll look at Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 121. This is where we're going to touch on uh, one of the more traditional Christmas passages. Matthew 121 is in the context of the story of Joseph. In the context of the story of Joseph, there's a couple out here maybe that are, we're in Awana Trek. If you come on Mondays, uh, we have a lot of fun. We also have teaching from God's Word. We did a, we did a, a case study of, of Joseph. There's so many cool things you can learn in Joseph's life from this passage. So that's just a little hint. Go read it and see what can we learn about Joseph as a godly man. But in that context, when the angel came to him and, and told him about the baby that was going to come, in Matthew 121, he's t the angel is telling Joseph about Mary and says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Christ, the promised one, Jesus is basically, again, the, the, the Greek version of Yeshua or Joshua. God saves. He is the one who is going to come and save his people from their sins. This baby was born, and he was going to come and save people from sins. And this historically happened. <clears throat> Think of who Jesus was. Think briefly. There's, again, so many tangents. We could preach for days on this stuff, right? And we only get one month to preach on Christmas, but uh, consider Mary and Joseph, right? Jesus had to be perfect, right? The perfect lamb to pay for my sin. And yet, as a baby, he couldn't make sure that he had followed all the rules, God had to choose parents 
who would follow those rules and make sure Jesus obeyed everyone to the letter. Mary and Joseph had an important role. It's just so cool. God can use regular people who are even broken and messed up. And, and if you read through the story and think about what's going on, estra- even estranged from their family and just from a difficult situation, God can use me. God can use you as we see our brokenness and allow God to use us. So think of Mary and Joseph. Uh, think about Jesus' 33 years. He lived a perfect life on my behalf, as John read in Hebrews this morning, uh, that Jesus went through every temptation that you and I undergo, and yet he managed, he did not fall at all. He succeeded every time for you and for me. Uh, in our house, just think of it this way, growing up as a child, in our house, four children, I think there's a fifth one. Uh, for some reason, I think we have a fifth one who's named not me. Any, anyone else have a not me in their house? What happened? Who did this? Not me. Oh, not me did it again, okay? And, and, and in Jesus' household, if, if it ever came up that not me did something, right? And someone said, Jesus did it. No, no, I don't think so, right? <laughs> but Jesus, Jesus lived with siblings. You guys with siblings, it, it doesn't have to be as stereotypical as, 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 as the world says it does, right? Siblings can get along and be friends, and, and we're trying to establish that, and I hope and pray you guys are too, right? You, you, my wife put on the wall of my boys' room, of our boys' room, it says, because I have a brother, I always have a friend, and I hope and pray that you are building good relationships with your siblings, but it's hard. There are still times where you fight, and it's hard, and, and Jesus lived with imperfect parents, right? And, and Jesus would have had imperfect friends and imperfect classmates and co-workers uh, and people of Israel who, who had certain views of the Romans and of the Jews, and, and he would have had all kinds of pressures, kind of like you and I have, right? But he obeyed every time in his words, in his actions, even in his thoughts. Jesus obeyed every time. He was perfect, Jesus never sinned, not even once. And as we'll see in a little bit, Jesus traded places with us. So now when God looks at me, he doesn't see when I'm impatient with my children or with my wife or whatever sin you want to throw out there, he doesn't see my sin. He sees Jesus's obedience. Jesus obeyed every time. And that is what God sees when he looks at me, if I'm trusting in what Jesus did on the cross for me. So cool to think about this. Christ, the promised one. Jesus, the one who lived and obeyed every time perfectly for you and for me. That is what we're celebrating. Christ, Jesus. The next phrase, came into the world. Came into the world. Think about Matthew and Luke, uh, the traditional Christmas story. The angels came. Last year, I had the privilege of, of, of preaching around Christmas time, December 6th, and I had like the little manger scene here. It's a long story. Anyway, uh, but it was, it was kind of fun. You think about the, the manger scene and the angels. You know the story. There is a real place where Jesus was born on this world. I am standing on the platform that's connected to, connected to, and it's connected to somewhere on this earth where Jesus was born. We don't necessarily know exactly where. There's a place where they think he was. Maybe he was born there. I don't know. But it, on this earth, Jesus came. There is a real place where he was born. Last week, I had the privilege of preaching. I, got, I get to use the same message twice. Preaching the same message in Marion, Ohio, giving Pastor Knoyer a break. On my way there, I drove past the hospital there in Dublin where my two younger children were born. And I, every time I go past that hospital, I think that's where, that's where Nathan and Joanna were born. There is a physical place. I could go to Lima and see where my older two children were born. There is a place in Lima where both of my children, they were born in the same room, kind of fun. But there are actual places where their story began 
physically on earth. They happen, and there's proof. Two of them are sitting here. Jesus was born, same kind of thing. He was born at a real place. This is a historical event. This is not make-believe, like, I don't want to burst any kids' bubbles, right? I won't say which, what make-believe stories go around these days. Elf on the shelf. I will bust that one. Anyway, never mind. Um, they're not made up. This is a true story. Christ Jesus came into the world. This is a true story. This is fact. And, and read through. When you, you know the passage you're supposed to read before you open presents, Luke 2? And you're just anxious to open presents, and someone has to read where, when Quirinius was governor, right? Those big names show us this is historically true. Luke was, was specific because he's not just making up a fairy, fairy tale once upon a time. No, hey, there was a specific time. There was this guy, and he was a governor, and there was a census. This happened. This is real. This is not just a made-up, made-for-TV special. This is truth that God entered the world. Christ Jesus came into the world. Why did he come into the world? To give us a holiday? No. The next phrase is, Christ came into the world, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. Turn to John chapter 3. You might be familiar with this verse. I'm not sure why this is like the most familiar verse, right? John 3.16, it's not the shortest by any stretch, right? But it's, it's, it's one of the most memorized because it ha it's the truth. It's the gospel in a nutshell to a certain degree, right? John 3, 16, and I'm actually going to go through 18. Does anybody like get gold star and like have memorized not just 3, 16, but also 17 and 18? Anyway, John 3, 16 through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus came to give life. God so loved the world that he gave. It's about giving. <laughs> yesterday or whenever you give gifts. Hopefully, you don't just get joy out of what you get, but out of giving. Isn't there something cool about giving something to someone and their, their eyes light? Oh, wow, they're surprised. And just, God so loved us that he gave, and he gave not just some cool toy or gift card or anything like that. He gave us Jesus. He gave us eternal life, and, and Jesus came not to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. We are all condemned. There's, in the world today, a lot of people will think like, like when they think about God and think he's unjust or whatever, they'll look and say, everybody's in the middle. Everybody's in the middle. And then God says, oh, you can come to heaven, but no, oh, you should go to hell and you come to go to hell, you go to heaven. And is that how it is? No. The fact is we are all below that line. We all deserve hell and separation from God. And the fact that anybody is saved is unfair. I should not be saved. Nobody should be saved. No matter how good we are, none of us should be saved. We are already condemned. We are already below that line. But Jesus came to offer us salvation, to save us from our sins. So if anybody believes in him, should not perish like we're already destined to, but have eternal life. How does this work? How does this work? If I had time, we'd go to a whole bunch of verses. But uh, Colossians 2. Let's just look at a couple of them. Let's go to Colossians 2. Verses 13 and 14. 
Somewhere this morning, it's all mushed in my brain already, but uh, I think John read or mentioned about, uh, or maybe even the prayer somewhere about Jesus became a curse for us and and the law. Um, But Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, help us understand how salvation works. Why did Jesus come? What did Jesus do? Again, he, he was born, but the story doesn't end there. It ultimately goes to the cross. What happened at the cross? Colossians 2, 13 and 14 which didn't even make my list on the PowerPoint. Well, that's weird. I'll write it down. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here's how it works. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to his cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took, our, he took my sin. Remember I said Jesus obeyed every time. So when God looks at me, he sees Jesus' perfect record. And he can do that. He gave me his perfect record because he took my list of sins, my book, my library of sins on the, on the cross. So when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he was, look, he was carrying my sin and God couldn't even look at my sin. And Jesus died on the cross, nailing it to his cross. It is finished, he said. It is done Never more to be paid anymore. It's done. I have paid it all. He nailed it to his cross. I love that verse. That's one of my favorite verses. Hopefully you have a lot of them too, right? A lot of favorite verses. But Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's how salvation works. Uh, You could look up 1 Peter 2.24 for the sake of time. We're going to keep going. But 1 Peter 2.24 talks about Isaiah, Isaiah 53 that was mentioned earlier. Uh, and it alludes to that, how by his stripes we are healed. Uh, you could go look at Galatians 3.13. Uh, is another really good passage. Um, Galatians, I switched that, which one I was going to put up there. Ha, fold, fold PowerPoint. Sorry, John. Uh, I switched which one I was talking about, which one I was going to just have you write down. Uh, but Galatians 3.13, we are cursed because of our sin, but Jesus took that curse for us on the tree. So many verses that help us understand what God did, what Jesus did for us on the cross. But uh, one of the best ones is 2 Corinthians 5.21, makes it really clear. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in, him, that, in, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, there's a lot of pronouns in here. Uh, but for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Again, when Jesus was on that cross, he became sin. He took my sin so that God couldn't even look at it. And that separation from God, that is hell. That is separation from, from God. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus became that who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus lived perfectly, and yet he died one of the most gruesome uh, execution. Uh, he endured one of the worst execution styles that exist, not because he did anything to deserve it, but because I deserved it, because you deserved it, because we all deserved it. Jesus died the sinner's death, even as someone who knew no sin, so that in him, if we are in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Are you in Christ this morning? Or are you trusting in this church? This is a great church. I'm so thankful for this church. But if you're trusting in this church to get you to heaven, Maranatha Baptist Church, you can stamp that, and God, I went to Maranatha Baptist Church. That's not going to get you into heaven. It's a great church where we can learn about how we get to heaven, but this will not get you to heaven. Maybe your family, you're trusting in what your family believes. That's not going to get you there. It's about being in Christ himself. Do you know Christ this morning? 
Verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you are not reconciled to God this morning, would you please be so? It is possible through Jesus Christ, taking your sin and paying for it. It is gone. Jesus paid that price for you. So, the first Timothy verse says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you're looking at your handout, uh, of whom I am the foremost apparently fell off. <laughs> so you can write that on. Of whom I am the foremost. We can't, we can't stop without talking about this. Why do I need this? What's the big deal? I'm not a bad person. This world, we like to compare ourselves. I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as, you know, the North Korean leader or, or, or Saddam Hussein or, or pick your favorite supervillain uh, in this world or whatever. I'm not as bad as that guy. But since when is that person the standard, right? Or I've never killed anyone. Oh, good, okay. Uh, that's never been the standard. God himself is the standard. We need to have the right perspective, I need to see myself as the chief of sinners, not better than anyone else. Jesus is the standard. God said, be holy for I am holy. I fall short of that. You fall short of that? I sure hope, hope you recognize that you do. This is one of the main points this morning. Again, we need to humble ourselves and recognize that I am the chief of sinners. Let's look at Matthew's words, uh, Jesus' words in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 12 and 13 specifically, but the story starts in verse 9. <clears throat> As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's so much in here. Uh, but the fact is, it's those who are sick who need a doctor. You know, Dr. Malumba is here, and we can see him, uh, not as a doctor this morning, but as a friend and a brother in Christ. But I will go see him if I am sick. If I'm not sick, hey, I hope to see you next Sunday. That's great, you know, or if we're getting together for dinner or something, right? Uh, or whoever else is doctors, but just, he's sitting here, and so thank you for that. But just, uh, I go to see him professionally if I am sick. Um, when we recognize our sickness and we need a doctor, that's when we go. It's those who are sinners who need a Savior. Uh, modern Christianity, American Christianity, often makes it seem like I'm a pretty good person. I, I just kind of need God's help to get me over the hump, right? That's kind of how it feels. But the fact is, no, I am sick. Better yet, according to that Colossians passage we just looked at, or, or the Ephesians passage, I am dead. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. A dead person can do nothing for themselves. I am spiritually dead. I don't just need a little bit of help. I need everything done for me. I am dead. Again, I credit, I think it was uh, Alistair Begg with this, but Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people live. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people live. 
Jesus came to call sinners, not those who thought they were righteous. And so which am I? Which are you this morning? Am I humble enough to recognize and admit my own sinfulness? Even in this world that swims in sin, it's very easy to point fingers and say, wow, that's sinful, that's sinful, that's sinful. To, to watch the TV with the remote in hand, turn it off because that's sinful. Okay, turn it back on the game uh, or whatever you're doing, right? It's so easy to point out and see other sin. I need to see my sin. I am the chief of sinners. I need to remove my own log before I try and remove their splinter so that I can share with them what I have found and what I have been given, focusing on Jesus and and what he's done for me instead of you and your need, right? Recognizing that I am more like them, whoever them is, right? Whoever your them is, (laughs) won't go political or anything here, but whichever side or whichever agenda, we are more like them than we are different from them. I, I am a sinner too. My sin's just different. And I needed Jesus to save me. And so I need to share Jesus with whoever it is, with whoever it is. I am a sinner in need of the Savior in the manger. And once I know him, it should change my world. So we move into the so what, the application or the the, the so what. That was nice. Nice little message. Make me feel good. No, this needs to impact our lives. If this is true, this changes everything. How should this impact my life? Again, if last week was looking at the humility of God, it should drive us to see our own need for humility. Uh, And if I am the chief of sinners, how should that impact my life? And so on the back of your handout, I listed a few categories. Uh, Others is for whatever God lays on your heart that maybe I don't mention. Uh, But... You see a few in here, right? Marriage. I am the worst sinner. Uh, this is one of the first times that, that, that this concept of, of whom I am the worst was brought to my attention and really made sense to me. I, we, I was re- my wife and I were reading a book, uh, When Sinners Say I Do, and he's pointing out the fact that until each of us sees that I am the, the worst sinner in this relationship, <laughs> if I'm pointing fingers, I'm never going to get anywhere, but until I see myself as the worst sinner in this relationship, we're not going to get anywhere. I need even if the other person's at fault, I need to focus on myself and what I am doing wrong. I am not perfect. I need to focus on how I can change and pray that God would do the same work in my spouse. I am the chief of sinners in my marriage. I am the chief of sinners even with my children. Uh, my, my children are sinners. I don't know about you, but that shouldn't surprise me because they get it from me. I passed it on. You think of, you think of Adam uh, Adam and Eve and the fact that Adam passed on sin and, and, uh, <clears throat> and so I passed it on to my children. It's not my wife's fault. It's my fault. <laughs> Theologically speaking, it's my fault. My children are sinners. But it shouldn't surprise me that they are sinners. I need to be patient with them as God is patient with me. I need to be forgiving as God has forgiven me. I need to point them to the Savior that they need, which is the same Savior that I need. I'm the chief of sinners, and that should impact my parenting. What about the church? As I mentioned earlier, the church is basically a hospital for broken and recovering sinners. We are a church of broken people. I had the privilege of being on the search committee for two two of the the pastors we currently have, and I had the privilege of sharing with them. We are a church of broken people. (laughs) 
I am a broken person. Many of you know my story. It's just God's grace alone that I am here sharing God's word with you. We are a church of broken people. And, and, and while we are recovering and God is doing some awesome things in our church, the fact is we're still going to hurt each other. We're going to disagree with each other. But we have a common Savior. And we need to let our unity around the Savior be stronger than what divides us. We need to give grace and patience to those around us, just as we've been given grace and patience from God. We need to listen and show the world the unity that can be in this world because of Christ, because we have the bond in Christ. We are, a, we, we are in central Ohio, and you guys are crazy uh, Ohio State fans. Uh, I am a Penn State fan, but we can have unity in Christ, which I'm not Michigan, so, but even with Michigan fans, dare I say that, right? But we, we laugh at that, and it's fun, right? But there are other things that divide us sometimes even a little more seriously. Maybe sometimes we take the football rivalry a little too much as well, right? But let that be a picture of the unity we can have that supersedes the superficial things. May we have unity around what we have in Christ here in this church. May we reflect Christ to the world because of our unity. The unsaved. I go to work. I work at a company that really pushes certain agendas uh, and, and people uh, of different mindsets, and they're some of the best workers that are out there. Uh, and so I work with so many different people, uh, and, and, and I need to want them to have what I have. What about our neighbors? We live in a neighborhood with Hindus and Muslims and all kinds of different things. Uh, these are my neighbors. I need to build friendships with them. My boys are in sports and connecting with fathers and parents and, uh, of various different backgrounds and, and situations. We are surrounded by unsaved people. You ever go to the grocery store and see people? <laughs> you say, I hope so, right? You see people. There are, we are surrounded by a world that needs Christ. Not that they need to change and that's not the right mindset. I was broken too. I still am broken, but God has saved me through Jesus, and I can share that with others. Whoever the unsaved are in your life, God saved me. He can save anyone. Do we believe that? Do we pray like it? Do, do we speak like it and watch for God to work? I should want them to be saved, and I should pray and work for that to happen. Who else? Who else comes to mind? I'll let you jot that down. There's others. Is there anyone else that God brings to mind that my relationship with Christ should impact how I respond to whoever it is? So what are the results? Let's go back to 1 Timothy. We're going to wrap this up with 1 Timothy 1, 16 and 17. 1 Timothy 1, 16 and 17. We'll start with 15 because that was our main passage today. So to see it in context. So 1 Timothy 1, 15. We'll just read through 15 and 16, then we'll finish with 17. <clears throat> the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Again, if God can save me, if Jesus came to save me, then there is no one who is beyond his reach. As I see myself as the chief of sinners, I'm the worst sinner I know because I can see my thoughts and my own heart, even if my actions and my smile is there. Sometimes my, my heart and my thoughts and my act are just wrong. I am the worst sinner I know because I know what's in here. 
And if God can save me, then there's no one beyond his reach. I can love my enemies, Matthew 5. I can love everyone else in my life as God loved me, even while I was still lost in sin, and he sent his son to die for me. Romans 5, right? Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while people out there, whoever they are, persecuting us, whatever it may look like in the future, as things get worse and worse, may we stand firm, as the Bible says. I can, I can undergo that. I can handle that because that's what, how I treated God. And yet Jesus came anyway and died for me. Jesus came and died for my sins, and he died for their sins. I want to share that with them. And then finally, let's look at verse 17. What are, what's else the result? God saves me. God can save others. Verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The result is not glorifying me or, or Pastor Andrew or anyone else in this church. The result is glorifying God glorifying God. Praise will just well up from us when we see God work and act. And may that be true of us as we go from here and we think about what we just celebrated, what we continue to celebrate. May that continue on as we get it just a little bit more that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost and I can share that with others. And then may God get the glory and the praise and not me. Let's pray. God, this is all about you. You could have left us. You could have left me to die in my sin and go to hell as I so richly deserve. And yet you didn't. Even while I was still a sinner, Jesus came to pay for my sin. Thank you, God, for that truth. God, this baby in the manger, God with us, that is so cool and so amazing. Help us to think through the rest of the story to understand that it points us to Easter, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you came to save us from our sin. May you get the glory and the credit. May Maranatha Baptist Church be a reflection of Jesus working in our lives. Thank you for the pastors. Thank you for the people. But God, may you get the glory. Give us your eyes this week as we go about our day, whether we go back to work this week or next week or school this week or next week, whatever we do, Lord, give us your eyes for people. No matter how they treat us, no matter what they're doing, May we see ourselves and think, but by your grace, that would be us. And may we hurt for people and not be angry with them. May we pray for people and gently share truth with them rather than complain and gripe. God, may we be your people. May we be salt and light. And Lord, may we want to see you work. And may you get the glory for all that you're doing in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.